founders. Welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. Okay, founders, welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm sitting down with Jennifer Smith, the CEO and co-founder of Scribe. A former VC and McKinsey consultant turned accidental CEO, Jennifer has interviewed more than 1,200 business leaders on a quest to understand everything there is to know about processes, best practices, and productivity. Now, with her startup Scribe, she's empowering people to own their processes by building the world's first operating system for know-how. With the mission to unleash know-how across teams, organizations, and communities. Scribe was built so that you can capture what you know and share it with anyone and do so fast. Scribe uses leading technology to auto-generate step-by-step guides, complete with text and screenshots. Founded in 2019 and headquartered in San Francisco, California, Scribe is newer on the scene but making a splash. Here to share her journey and lessons along the way is Jennifer. Jennifer, thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Drew. Yeah, so... Uh, we took our stab at kind of understanding your story. Hopefully we were somewhat factually correct. Uh, but in your own words, accidental CEO, what does that mean? How did we get, how did we get here? Yeah, it, it means that if you had asked me 10 years ago, do you think you'll ever be founder of a tech company? I probably would have laughed at you. I think Silicon Valley is, is full of uh, folks I meet who say, I knew I wanted to start a company, you know, back when I was in college and, and I'm whatever the antithesis is of that. So <laughs> I graduated school and went to uh, McKinsey, um, not because I had any idea really what management consulting was, but because it was the management consultants and the investment bankers who recruited on campus. And I did investment banking for a summer at a place called Lehman Brothers, I'm dating myself. And uh, I looked around and said, like, these people care a lot about money, but they don't seem to care about much else. And I met the the consultants and I said, these people seem curious about the world. They seem curious about how business works. And I really like curious people. So I'm going to go hang out with them and see what I can learn. And I ended up spending seven years there. Um, and I did a lot of org organization and operations work, which hmm. functionally meant I would spend nine to five in operation centers looking over the shoulder of agents, uh, trying to figure out how to make them more efficient. And it, which was a ton of fun for them, as you can imagine. Oh, yeah. um, and, and interesting for me, if you ever do that work, you build incredible empathy for, for folks who are in those roles. If you ever talk to a customer support agent when you're calling in, be nice to them. They have very hard jobs. <laughs> Um, and you know, if you do that work as a consultant, you learn the name of the game is you figure out who the best person in that center is and you sit next to them and you just say, what are you doing differently? And they'll tell you, you know, they would, uh, they'd thunk down a big binder on my desk and they'd say, here's all the stuff I was trained to do. I'm dating myself. It was back when we wrote things down in a thick binder. Uh, you know, here's all the stuff I was trained to do, but I found these 30 shortcuts. Here's what I do differently and better. And yeah. my team would write that up. And we'd sell that back to our clients for a whole bunch of money. And I always thought like, gosh, if those people had just had a way to share what they know how to do, like they could have had really big impact on that ops center, right? They didn't, they didn't need me to be regurgitating it for them. And I kind of thought, well, that seems like a really obvious problem. Someone will certainly solve that someday, right? And then you fast forward 10 years later and, and I'm working in venture capital and um, I got really interested um, there on how software gets bought. We talk a lot in Silicon Valley in particular about how, and, and as founders, about how we sell software, right? Mm, but I, mm. I was like, what does the other side of this equation look like? Why is someone making a buying decision? What problems are they trying to solve? Where are they seeing gaps in the market? What do they wish existed? And it kept coming back to this idea of my business runs on processes, on people doing things every day. And the way my business gets better is by people getting better at doing those things. And right now, it's really hard for me to even know how are people doing things right now and to be able to find best practices and spread them across everyone. My, my only option is really to tell someone, like, stop doing your job and write down what it is you know how to do, right? Mm. Or, or maybe you hire some fancy consultant, some 29-year-old version of Jennifer with a Lenovo ThinkPad to, to write it down for them, right? But it, it's all very manual. And so... I kept coming back to this idea of like, gosh, what if you could just watch people do work and automatically capture what they know how to do? What if you made capturing the best of someone's knowledge, documenting sort of best practices automatic? 
What if you could use technology to watch an expert do work and automatically capture what they know how to do? And and that's the whole idea behind Scribe. And so I, I talk about myself as an accidental entrepreneur because it wasn't that I set out to start a company and said, like, what problem should I be solving? It's I just got really interested in this problem. And there's this famous Steve Jobs quote, like, you can only connect the dots when you look backwards. And I, I feel very much that way about my life when I now look backwards over the last 20 years of my career. Like, I feel like everything's sort of been leading me to, to where I am now. I'll tell you, it didn't feel that way living it at the time. <laughs> it felt like a, a very like dark abyss ahead where you, you don't know what's coming next. Um, but it's really just this this interest, probably even an obsession um, with this problem and, and with like, how do we make the experience of the billion knowledge workers in the world better when they're showing up to work nine to five every day and make sure yeah. they have like the best of what they need to know what to do their job and make it so that they can share the best of what they figured out with everyone else. You know, it's interesting, and I'm curious if you would agree with this observation, but doing 200-something interviews of founders, it seems like how they get into it is one of two ways, and each has its own benefit and its own challenge. One is like you, which is never really imagined, didn't set out to be a founder or you know that kind of thing, but I saw a problem that felt obvious or I was passionate to solve, and so I did it. And the benefit there is your business is actually founded on solving a clear problem, Right. Challenge is you have to now embrace the role of being founder when you never really imagined yourself doing that and all the things that come with it. Or the opposite is you always knew you wanted to be a founder. And the challenge is that you don't often know or even quite think first about the problem being solved. You more think about the company you'd like to create, you know? Right. Uh, is that kind of in your experience? Have you seen those two onroads into, into being a founder? Yeah, I would say there's there's a, a third one, which I saw a lot when I was in VCA, and particularly because I was on the enterprise software side, of people who fell in love with the technology. Mm. Um, so I'm a technologist, I'm an engineer, I'm a product person, and I've like I've built this cool thing. We've invented this new protocol, like there's this, you know, this cool new thing that that we've done. And um, the the upside to that is obviously like it's quite innovative. It tends to be something that's new, better, faster, shiny, exciting, all the good things. The, the downside to that is um, connecting that to a real world customer problem and thinking about how do you actually build a company around that. And so yeah. I worked with a lot of founders who would, again, build something really cool and interesting. They'd go into a basement and like just, you know, build something that's technically very challenging and they'd come out nine months later and they'd say, Jennifer, look at this amazing thing that we built. I was like, I don't fully understand it, but it sounds great, right? And maybe yeah. it's, it's over my head, um, but sounds good. And they'd say, okay, can you can you go like sell this for us? And I said, well, have you talked to any customers in the last nine months? And they <laughs> yeah. said, no, that's your job. Like you'll help me sell it, right? I mean, I just built this really cool thing. And there's a big gap between building something that's really novel and interesting and then actually having that solve real world customer problems, packaging it in a way that they can find your technology, adopt your technology, do the change management of working with something new. And then how do you actually productize that and turn that into a company where you have a sustainable go to market around it and everything else that that comes from company building. And so um, you're right. Founders can can come from different paths, but regardless of which entry point you take, you got to wear all of those hats. Yeah. What did that look like for you in your experience of building this company? For me, it was, um, again, this, this sort of like obsession with this problem and this like, how do I make just the lives of people better when they're coming to work? I know it sounds trite to say that, but it actually just deeply bothers me when I think mm. about the experience of most people going to work every day and you are doing a lot of the same things over and over again. Um, there's a lot that is done today and, and we focus around like specifically this idea of sharing know-how. If you think about what your experience looks like, if anyone's like worked within a company, how often are you trying to find access to information or asking a colleague? How often does someone just say like, hey, Drew, I got a quick question. Can you show me how you do this again? Remind me, like, how do I generate that quarterly report that we're doing? Like, how do I how do I find my benefits in this in the software portal? Oh, we just we just adopted this new tech. Like, can you quickly show me how to use it? Yeah. And people yeah. are like hopping on Zooms and they're sending emails to each other. God forbid they're copy pasting screenshots and writing out documentation for each other. And anyone who's done that knows that's a that's a pretty painful experience on both sides. But it's kind of just like assumed to be a cost of doing business, right? So so people sort of say like, oh, it is what it is. I you know, I spend that time talking to people. I don't even really think about it. 
But you add that up, and that's really significant amounts of time. Um, of course, I have to reference a McKinsey study. Like McKinsey estimates that's a day a week for mm. knowledge workers just found trying to get info that they need to do their job. And that's really disempowering. That's a terrible feeling. And everyone is having it every day in small micro doses throughout the week. And so I just got really obsessed. Like, what if I could take that away? And now what if I could make everyone not only have all the info they need, but have the best info that they need, the right way, the best way, the most efficient way to do that particular process? Like, businesses run on processes. People, when they are fingers on keyboard, are doing processes, digital processes all day long. What if I could make that even a little bit better? And now you multiply that across everyone. That's a huge impact. Now, what if I could actually make it a lot better? Like, wouldn't that be a magical experience for everyone? And so I'm always like really motivated by just how do I deliver like a great user experience? How do I make it so that people say like, wow, that was really magical. I didn't even expect that technology could do that for me. And we see that with users of Scribe, and that's the most satisfying thing for me. We we um, we actually like started doing a little campaign where we'll take uh, screenshots of people at the moment the Scribe is automatically rendered with their permission, obviously, <laughs> at the moment where where the Scribe is rendered, right? Where like it they they hit the record button, they do a process, they hit stop record, and boom, the Scribe automatically pops up, and it's a step by step guide with screenshots showing that thing they just did. And, and like, there's this moment where people go, <gasps> and like, there's an audible gasp and like a big kind of smile and shock. Like I live for that moment. Wow. <laughs> that is what motivates me every day. Well, where my, where my mind is going to the pain point that I see, and I'm curious if Scribe, it sounds like it solves this, but, but correct me if I'm wrong, is, you know, I mentioned before we, we started recording that we work with fast brain companies and their, their leadership. And so typically everything's growing quickly and somewhat organically and roles are being kind of multiple hats are being given to, to leaders and to people along the way. And so they find themselves doing a variety of things. Things are really good at things are not good at, but they just had to do because they were the one in the position to do it. And at some point they hit this, like, I know I need to get things off my plate in order to really step into the role I need to play here, but it feels overwhelming to them. It feels like it's going to be incredibly time consuming. They're like, I don't know how I would even pass this off. You know, it would take too much time to train somebody mm-hmm. and they get stuck in that place. And it sounds like something like this would also help solve that problem and go, well, hey, use Scribe. It could help you quickly document for you the processes you're looking to get off your plate and to, to give to somebody new and, and help them delegate and elevate. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, here I hear this all the time. I'm sure you do too. Like, oh, my, my business is growing so fast. I don't have time to hire someone new. I don't have time to onboard someone exactly. new. I don't have time to get a VA who can do some of these tasks for me because I don't have time to show them how to do it. And, and like when you hear yourself saying that, by the way, like alarm bells should go off in your head and you should say, as soon as you say like you don't have time to do it is a sign that you really should be finding more leverage because <laughs> you, like you really need it. And so I'm always about how do you find points of leverage in your day? And, you know, specifically with Scribe, it's it's um, taking something that used to be an either or, like either I do the work that I need to be getting done or I drop the ball and I take the time to train someone on how to do it, right? Like we very much think that way. And, and I'm like always about the and. Are there places you can find the and instead? And with Scribe, there's the and, which is you're doing the work and it's automatically creating material that you can use to train someone up without having to spend any more time. It's turning like the knowledge that you have into something that is scalable media. How is it doing that? Is there some version of AI or machine learning or something that you have implemented to help guide that process? Yeah, exactly. So we said like we want creating documentation, creating a tutorial, a step-by-step guide on how to do something to be no more work than just doing the work itself. So Mm. it's you do what you're going to do plus two clicks. It's a browser extension or a desktop application. You click the record button and you just do the process you were going to normally do anyways. Here's how I like, you know, enter a lead into my CRM, right? Record, enter your lead, do the thing you normally would do, hit stop record. And then boom, Scribe will auto-generate a step-by-step guide on how to do it. Step one, navigate to your CRM, www.blank. Step two, click on the add new lead. 
And like, of course you can customize it and edit and all these things, but I really try to discourage people from that unless they need to, because all the info's already in that scribe that someone would need to follow that process. And so I'm all about like, how do you do two things at the same time? How do you find these moments of efficiency? How do you find the and? And taking these things that often, again, feel like an either or a trade-off and instead say like, can you do, can you accomplish both things by thinking about it differently? And in the case of Scribe, it's a, can you do work and effectively capture what it is you know how to do in a scalable way that you can hand off to other people? Shit, Jennifer, this is huge. I'm a very limited amount of times I've heard an idea and thought, oh, that's like true innovation. That is, that will be in my mind synonymous with, you know, you don't just think about like tissue, you think about Kleenex, right? You don't just think about ketchup. It's like what I think you all are, are solving a problem and, and going to be the category king in that. That is, again, I'm already thinking about clients. Like as soon as we get off of this, how do I get them introduced to Scribe so that they could bring this in? The idea that you could just do the work. I've seen other solutions where yeah. they offer like, you know, we'll help you film and record what you need to pass on. But you're still having to take time out of your day to sit down, prepare what information right. you're trying to pass along to who put it in a video format versus and then do if you the have work. to update it later you're re-recording like the whole exactly. video again it takes time yeah but the idea that someone could just do the work they're already doing and this thing just capture it for them in a scalable format is brilliant i'm so impressed yeah it's it's really exciting for us and and both my favorite and least favorite reaction founders i think will will sympathize with this when when i like demo and and show this to folks is I very often will get a, wow, that's really amazing. Why, why doesn't this art exist? Like, why has no one shown this to me before? This makes a ton of sense. And, and I always kind of laugh and chuckle and say, like, I think the best things do once you see them, you say like, oh, it's like a post-it note. That seems really obvious, but someone had to invent the post-it note first. And, you know, for us, it took us, you know, years in market of like iterating on a product, getting feedback, like changing it and being ruthlessly focused on how do we reduce friction throughout the experience and make this just as easy and dead simple and high ROI for a user as possible. So like one of the metrics we track is how long does it take someone from the moment they land on our site to the time they're able to share a scribe. So they've created and they're now sharing it. That moment when you get value from our product, right? And uh, it's four minutes. Um, And like we continue to take that down as much as possible. And and it's because like humans hate friction. And especially when you're pitching to someone, we're here to make you more efficient. We're here to make you more productive. We're here to give you leverage and scale what you're doing. The last thing you want is to say, oh, and by the way, you got to take 15 minutes to figure out how to use my product and sign up for it. Right. And so like, how do we just make it super, super easy? So this is not an additional thing that you have to do. There's no ROI hurdle out of the gate. It's like immediate, you know, we're boom, you're able to get value almost instantly. Yeah. If you look back at your first year, which was 2019, right? Yeah. In that first year, were there any critical decisions or moments, uh, that you can remember that were, um, you know, I just think the first few years is when you're most vulnerable to being a statistic, to mm-hmm. a great idea that never takes off, a great idea that never gets profitable, all that kind of stuff. And so when you're here, you've done something right to not be that statistic. So what in that first year, were there any critical moments or decisions that, that you think you and the team did to keep you guys alive and growing? Uh, the first thing I'll say is I don't look at statistics. I'm well aware of them. And let me tell you, when you start a company, everyone around you will also make you Remind well you. aware of those statistics, <laughs> right? Oh, you're great. Why are you starting a company? Do you know most companies fail? And blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So, okay, great. I'm not going to be that statistic. I just, I don't, it doesn't matter to me what happens yeah. to everyone else. Like that's not what's, that's not what I'm doing here. And so you've got to always be focused on the outcome you want, not the outcome that you fear. Um, you know, we, like I said, we spent a lot of time kind of like iterating and, and trying to figure out like what the, the right solution was and, and what the form factor was for this product. And so the first thing we, we, um, we went to market with in 2019 is, is not what Scribe looks like today. As you can imagine, it was like not even web connected. It's, it's the same idea, but just looks radically different. And it's because we put out a very, very basic MVP where, you know, Reed Hoffman like famously says, like, if you're not. If you're not embarrassed by your MVP, you spent too much time on it. 
Yes. I'm embarrassed by our MVP. We bring <laughs> it up now in our team meetings and we look at it and we all have a good chuckle and a laugh. Um, but it was, uh, you know, a difficult decision at the time to put that out because we had built a much more complex, um, I won't get into all the details, but like we, we had built like, uh, like not just Scribe, but like Scribe plus automation and a bunch of these other things. And we were getting feedback from our, our users that like, hey, the most valuable part for me of this whole singing, dancing thing that you're building in, in a basic way is actually just like understanding what my processes are. Like, how are people doing this work? How can I capture what my work is? How can I make it in a scalable way to share with others? That's the most important part. And so we made what felt like a very hard decision at the time to say, we're going to double down just on that first part, just on like, a, how do we make that that creation experience as automatic and magical and seamless as possible and we're going to forget all of these other things mm. that we think are important and interesting because that's not what our users are telling us they value the most like actually building something that's smaller in scope but doing it really 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 obsessively well is like going to add a lot more value and so again it, now we look at it and say like oh yeah that feels obvious at the time, it felt pretty controversial. Yeah. Um, and so it was like very much a leap of faith to say, we are just going to release this thing. We're going to release it for free. And we're just going to put it out in the world. We're not doing any marketing around it. We're just going to launch it on Product Hunt. And we're just going to see what the world says and what happens. And we saw it like pick up and grow legs. And then again, the hardest part was paying attention to that and listening to the signals and saying like, okay, we're going to bet the whole company on this. This is this is the key because we're seeing this thing grow just organically. Man, so what I'm curious about uh, is the first few kind of iterations, right? You had your, your very first MVP and then you narrowed it down to more of the niche offering. How did you go about actually getting the first people to test the MVP in the next iteration? Yeah, so um, I'm so grateful to the Product Hunt community uh, because we, we launched on Product Hunt um, and we were you know, like number three product of the day or something. So um, like high enough that a number of people saw it and supported it and then continued to support it and share it with their friends over time. And so what, what was really interesting to us was we did no mark. We didn't have any marketers on staff. It was just like me and engineers, right? And so we released this thing and like I wrote a little note on Product Hunt that was like, we think this is important because of these reasons, but you tell us, like, is this important? Is this the right form factor? Like, are we solving this problem the way that, that we think is right? Do you agree? Would you think about this differently? And we got so much feedback from the community, and then they started sharing it. They shared it with their friends. We we had probably like 10 blog posts written about us in, in different languages. Like every wow. day I'd get like a scribe in Italian, like scribe in French. And you're, you're like, how did these people even hear about us? And it was just from that community because it's a community of early adopters, right? And what is Product excited. Hunt? Oh, Product Hunt is a community of really product enthusiasts. So it's a place where um, people who have created new things, new products, and it can be really big, all singing, feature rich products or, or very light, like here's a basic like listicle of things that I think are interesting, right? And everything in between. And you just release it on Product Hunt and the community can upvote it and provide comments on it. And so it's really like a discovery platform for people who want to see what's new and cool coming down the pike. And so wow. for anyone who's building technology, um, I think it's a great place to like just connect with an early adopter community who's really keen and very forgiving of MV ugly MVPs. They actually enjoy the fact that it's like, if you release something that's super polished on product hunt, you'll probably get feedback like, bro, why is this so polished? Right? Like you clearly spent a lot <laughs> of trying time to impress on here. <laughs> right. Right. Like people want to see something new and it's interesting. And so, like for us, that was one such community. I'm sure there's like many others for, for different verticals, but certainly for people building any kind of tech company, like finding these places of people who want to give feedback on early products is, is really key. That is huge. Uh, I mean, whoever invented that is also a very smart person to create a community and a place for founders like you to be able to MVP their product and get some feedback and, uh, not have to waste a whole, not waste, but spend a whole bunch of marketing dollars just to get that feedback is a great idea. Ryan um, Hoover, thanks you for the compliment. <laughs> and I think Ryan Hoover, Ryan Hoover, the founder, and I thank Ryan for building a, a really great community. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Uh, 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 this is actually for me. You've mentioned several times form factor. I can mm -hmm. intuit what I think that means, but what do you mean when you say form factor? 
Yeah, what your product actually looks like and how people get it and how it's delivered. So when, okay. when we first did it, it was like a desktop application that you downloaded. It was clunky. It was ugly. It was designed by engineers, so it was not beautiful, but, you know, it, it worked. <laughs> um, and, and it was really, really basic. And we knew, like, if this thing works, this is not what this is ultimately going to look like at all, right? We just said, what is the most basic, simple, fast way that we can test whether people are willing to hit a record button and, and again, very early core idea and, and um, you know, want to be generating step-by-step -step guides based on what they're doing. And yeah. so we said, like, this is not, we're not building for the end state right now. We are building for just the most basic MVP of something so that people can experience the core functionality and tell us, like, is this even something that we care about? Because you can believe all you want. I mean, I talked to many, many users and businesses before, and I had a really strong intuition that this was something people cared about. But you really never know until you yeah. put it out yeah. in the market, and people will surprise you with with what they share. And if they care about your product, they'll give you a lot of feedback. And we got a ton of feedback. Hey, this is really helpful, but I'd love to be able to like share it this way, or like actually, I want to be able to edit in this way, or. Um, you know, obviously, can you put this on the web so that I can collaborate with others on it? Um, so a lot of stuff that you say, like, yes, that's obviously plan that on their roadmap. But then a lot of other stuff where you see people hacking together your product and using it in ways that you had never thought or intended. Yeah. It's like, oh, that's really interesting. And the I think one of the biggest challenges for a founder, and it's a very good, good challenge to have, is when you have something that the market wants, it will pull you in many different directions. You can only pick one. And so it's not just like, what do you say yes to, but really what are all of the other things that you choose to say no to? Yeah. And it's the same thing when you think about your time, right? Think about what you're doing in a given day. Like you've got a million things you could be doing. You're probably getting asked by clients all the time. Like, can you do this, this, that? It's like, it's just as important what you choose to say no to as what you say yes to, because saying no is saying yes to other things. Is there a certain criteria that you used or used to help make those decisions? Or is it, I trust my gut or is it I look at the data and in particular, what data do I look at that helps me make a decision? Yeah, it, it depends on what we're talking about. Right. And, and like how much data we have. So in the very early days, it, you have to be very gut driven because you have very yeah. little data. But what you say is I have a hypothesis. So here's the metric I ultimately care about. I care about you know, I don't know, like number of scribes created, right? Or I, whatever engagement is for your product, right? I care about like this metric for engagement. And here's my hypothesis for what's going to get people to engage the most, which is a proxy for what's value, right? So, okay, my hypothesis of these two things got driven, like let's just build an MVP and then we're going to go test it. We release that and then we are going to monitor very rigorously what is the impact on that engagement metric that I care about. We do a lot of A-B testing as well as part of that, right? Okay, so like let's do a control versus the experimental condition and then and then we're able to test and see. And so you become much more data-driven over time. Your hypothesis can still, and for us it often is, just an intuition-driven. It's a gut. Mm. I've talked to enough users, like I have a deep sense of, of the problem we're solving for them in like this market. Like my gut tells me this is probably the right way to move that metric. And our reaction often as a team is like, great, let's test it. Great. Let's test it. Sounds good. Let's test it. I love that. Yeah. This probably been the most common, uh, common, not meaning like, Oh, everybody knows that, but I, I interview successful founders, right? So what's in common with them is this idea of totally embracing the need to test ideas and test them quickly. You know, mm -hmm. a founder I had on last week said the difference between him and his competitors, cause he's in a small vertical where there's a few big, you know, competitors, was he said they spent six months, you know, on their idea before they rolled it out. And he said in that six months, we had failed 10 times and pivoted. And yeah. he's like, I would have, we spent our six months learning. They spent six months in a vacuum ideating and trying to tweak it without actually getting feedback. And I just hear that again and again, like as best you can, how quickly can you just test the idea instead of, you know, thinking it's a great idea in your head and putting a bunch of money behind it and time and energy and that kind of thing only to release it and find out it was off the mark. Right. I talk about startups as, as being a rapid learning machine. And mm. this is, especially if you're going up against an incumbent, like this is your competitive advantage. There are, there are two things that you've got compared to an incumbent. You've got the fact that um, if market conditions are changing, you can react faster to them. And you've got the fact that like you can pivot and change and experiment so much faster than they ever could. And so what you're trying to do is get to insight as fast as possible. 
doesn't yeah. really matter if you fail. That's that's fine. That's actually good. That should be celebrated. What you need to do is design an experiment, be clear what the success criteria are, and then sprint to get there as fast as possible so you can learn, did it work or did it not work? And what I tell my team is something working is obviously best case scenario. Something not working and giving us clear signal pretty quickly is second best scenario. That's really good. The worst scenario is if you didn't execute on it well enough to be able to get like meaningful data out the other side. So that's a complete waste of time. Or if you never even shipped it at all, and then you're guaranteed to have no data. Mm. And so how do you constantly build for being a rapid learning machine? And and that obviously applies to our product too, because with our product, for what we're trying to do for our users is help them and their companies be rapid learning machines. How do we constantly learn better ways of working? How do we share that across everyone? And, and a startup is, is the same thing. It's all about speed to insight. And the way you do that is by rapid experimentation. Have you found, I've got multiple questions here, but the one I think I want to start with is what, what your analogy brings to mind is something we've thought about in terms of like a, a small speed boat versus a giant cruise ship, right? Mm. And that the incumbent is often because it's big and successful and tons of employees and overhead, mm -hmm. it's kind of like that big cruise ship. And you could look at it and go, oh my gosh, we're so much smaller. But what's, like you said, what's the advantage? Well, a speedboat can turn a whole lot quicker and it can get somewhere a whole lot quicker versus any change to that cruise ship takes days, months for that thing to turn its course, right? But let's say you are listening to this and you're a founder and you're like, all right, I'm bigger now, but I still want to be able to innovate. I still want to be able to test. How do you, how would you recommend someone think that way? That's not just for the early days when we were in, you know, five people around a desk ideating. Yeah. How yeah. do we stay innovative even as our company grows? Yeah. Uh, you know, I experienced this even with Scribe, right? Where we tripled in size within a couple quarters. And that happened to be the quarter where I, I had my first child. And so I missed like a number of all hands when I was in the hospital. And uh, when I came back, like suddenly there were just a lot more faces on the screen and, and people in, in the room with me. And, you know, I felt a bit of that, like before when we would make a decision on something, we'd just kind of like look around the table and everyone be like, yep, seems like a good idea. Like, let's test it and go. And, and now it's, you know, hey, like, let's, we got to tie everything to a, a bigger mission. Like, we got to be clear to everyone. Here's what we're trying to do. We've done a whole exercise um, based off of Jeff Wiener's vision to values. He's the, the leader, was the leader of LinkedIn. Um, you know, uh, where are we trying to go? Like, what's our mission? What are we trying to achieve? What do we value? Like, what are the themes? What are the pillars that are going after that? Some of this, like, more big company type stuff, but it's really important because now when we go to do something and make a decision, we say, we're doing this because this supports this thing that we all agreed that we thought mm. was really important. And it's still within the same framework of testing. So none of that has changed, right? And that's just a culture you have to be ingraining constantly. When you've got more people around the table, there's more opportunity for them to spend time just talking to each other about ideas, right? And not yeah. actually doing something. And so our, um, our number one value um, as a company is default to action. And so we will constantly like call out and praise in instances where we had an idea and someone says, great, I'm going to go test it. Like, here's my hypothesis. Here's the success mm. criteria. Here's what I'm going to track. I've set up like the tracking board here. And like, we're going to run this for five days and see what happens. Boom, go. Um, and so you need to constantly, you need to figure out what those things are that you believe are really important for your business. For us, we believe it's default to action. I think that should be true for, for um, a lot of companies that are sort of in that fast growing, uh, you know, stage. Um, and, uh, and you just got to reward that behavior when you see it and constantly push people to the point where they might even feel a little uncomfortable, right? Like, oh, this feels like we're moving too fast. I'm used to being on a cruise ship. I came from a cruise ship. Yeah. You just put me on a speedboat and we're going really fast, guys. And I'm afraid I'm going to fall over. And I have to say, like, good. <laughs> if you feel like you're about to fall over or you feel like the wheels are about to come off or whatever the analogy is for a boat, I don't know. I don't spend a lot of time <laughs> in a nautical environment. Um, but if you feel like, you know, the wheels are going to come off or whatever, like, that's good. That means we're going fast. That's what it should feel like. Yeah. Yeah, man. I, I saw, I wish I could remember. I think it might've been the founder of like the Silicon, one of the Silicon ring manufacturers or something that's kind of dominated the category. And he said early on, you got to pick kind of what thing you value most. And for us, we chose to value speed. And so mm -hmm. that just similar to you, he's like that then shaped the culture that we created and one of the things we realized was we had to be okay with empowering people to make decisions that 
if you're going to choose speed, it means that we got to have a lot of people that feel comfortable and empowered to try the thing out to say, Hey, mm -hmm. like you said, I created this small test and I took it my initiative and here's how we're going to track it. If, but if everything has to go through you, if every test has to be designed by Jennifer, if every decision has to go through you, you're never going to have a fast growing company. Right. And so I think even the clarity of, do I want this or do I want that? Because depending on my answer, I'm going to kind of create a different process and culture behind that, that ultimate goal. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, and the way that we do that is by pushing a lot of responsibility and autonomy, <clears throat> excuse me, is by pushing a lot of autonomy and responsibility to, to individuals. Mm -hmm. um, and when we have an experiment we're running or initiative we're trying to push, it's not these five people own it because that's the surefire way to make sure no one actually defaults to action, right? They're going to all spend time making sure the other four people are okay with what they do. We instead say, you are responsible. You are the one running with this. You can involve other people, obviously, right? Pull them in. They can help consult. But you are the one who owns this at the end of the day. You make the decision, and you're the one who's accountable for the results. And by the way, if it fails, that's fine, right? That's okay. Yeah. That's accepted. Just fail fast. I wonder if you've if you've uh, implemented something similar or heard about this. But so I have a, a friend um, who has been highly, highly successful and in, in kind of being either the co-founder or CFO. He's been in multiple roles of tech companies. He's now in VC. But I was asking him, like, how did you practically do what you're talking about, right? Same idea. I wanted to empower people. But I was like, don't they get scared? That like, yeah, you say that, but what if I do fail and, and all of a sudden I find out that wasn't acceptable or whatever? And he had this phrase that he implemented to them that I found really helpful that I've hung on to. He said, it, any decision you make that you can justify fit our core values, I will not fire you for. Mm -hmm. And that was his simple metric. Like the only thing I want you to run through is does this decision align with our core values? If it's in direct contradiction to any of them, I don't want you to do it. If it's within them, I will not fire you for it. Results will be the result. But if you can justify that this fit our values, then you're safe. And I was like, wow, that's kind of a simple way and like a, a smart strategic way to, to give people permission, but give some parameters like, yeah, fail and experiment, but like our parameters are within our core values. How does that reflect what we've said is our decision-making metric? Does that make sense? Yeah, I love that. We, we do a version of this where, I mean, I think so much of it is about setting examples and, and living what you say. And so in our team, all hands, we reserve the last five minutes or so, and we will just shout out or recognize people who lived our values that week. Yes. So Shout out to Thomas. He really defaulted to action in shipping this experiment, right? He just, he, he like, he just did it. He's an engineer and, you know, he designed it himself and he just got out the MVP and we're tracking the results. Or, you know, shout out to, uh, you know, Aaron, he, he shipped something and, you know, it didn't work, but we got really clear data and now we know. And you're celebrating people who yes. have lived those things, regardless of the outcome, right? But like people who lived the value. How would you describe? And that's a great, like, by the way, as you think about sort of like talent, right? And how do you attract, develop, and retain really great talent? Really great talent is drawn to those kinds of environments. Let's let's go there. I was going to go somewhere else, but I like that. What, what what do you mean those kinds of environments? And how do we create those kind of environments? Yeah, we think a lot about, um, I think a lot about how do we make Scribe the best experience that people have had in their professional mm. careers? Like I tell people when they come in, I want at the end of time, you know, your time at Scribe, I hope it's a long one to say, that was the most rewarding experience I've had. And so let's talk about what does what does that mean and what do we need to do here to, to make sure that's true? And that starts with recruiting, right? Making sure like what you're trying to do lines up with, with where we're going. And I spend a lot of my time in recruiting trying to convince people not to come to Scribe. Here's why you shouldn't be at a fast growing company, right? Here are all the reasons like this might be uncomfortable or not a good fit for you. It's a, it's a fit for a small minority of people. And so if you don't know if it's a fit for you, statistically, it's not, right? <laughs> um, and so like, and then that extends to once people have joined. And, and I talk about creating a culture where people come here, people are great at what we bring in people who are great at what they do. And they come described to become excellent at that craft. And so I look for people who think about how to be excellent at their craft and care about honing that. And then we think about how do we create an environment here where people can show up and do work that they feel really proud of and feel really supported and respected, but are constantly pushed and challenged to grow and get better at it. 
because we've brought in people who care about that and who explicitly value that, right? So yeah. it's like, it all comes from this overarching sort of strategy and then making sure everything we do is supporting that, whether it's like bringing in people who are really aligned with that and then reinforcing it and actually delivering on what I think is a value prop. It's a talent value prop um, once people are here. What I find interesting about that is the things that you mentioned that are actually, or you're hoping to be actually attractive to these types of people, the right types of people that you want to work with are things like mastery of craft, uh, support, things like that versus this is just observational. I'm, I haven't been in the VC world or I don't live in you know Silicon Valley, but it felt like we went through a period of time where people recognized, Hey, we've got to, we've got to have a better culture that people want to be a part of and excited to work here. And what they did was like perks, like mm -hmm. we'll give you scooters to go around the office and we'll give you somewhere a nap pod for you and, and things like that we'll have ping pong tables and that kind of deal which i think excited people for a little bit but was more like candy than like substance you know what i mean and now people are saying what do we really want like what would actually make this a fulfilling use of your your time and your profession versus an exciting cool thing that we can take a picture of and put on instagram that our office has a beer tap inside of it you know what i mean is oh, absolutely. I mean, we don't have ping pong tables. We don't have things that look like ping pong tables. And, and that's very deliberate. You know, I've, I've had friends who are engineers, it, it's the companies there, and they're like, oh, I, I go to work at 11 o'clock because that's when the smoothie bar opens up, right? And you're like, that's not, that's not <laughs> inspiring for you or the people that you work with. Um, I, what I think is like really inspiring is saying like, I want to become great at this thing. I'm an expert at this thing, or I want to become an expert at this thing. I want to be able to say this. And like, I'm going to a place that is excited about that for me and supports me in that and does everything that they can to like help me get to where I want to go. Yeah. Um, it's really like, I believe very strongly that people want to be the best version of themselves they can be. And so I think a lot about that as an employer, how do I set up an environment where people can learn to be the best of what they're being? And, and I think a lot about that as a, as a technology provider for our users, right? Like you are trying to get better at what it is that you do. You've already, you've already figured out, if you're creating scribes, you've already figured out something hard. You've done, you figured out how to do something cool and interesting and unique and valuable let's take away the grunt work part of, you know, having to document it or, or hop on a Zoom with someone. Let's make it automatic for you to be able to share that. And for people receiving on the other side, let's make it so you can constantly up level every day. You can learn something better and be easier and have that be seamless and at your fingertips. And it's because I believe like people go to work every day wanting to have impact. They want to yeah. be the best that they can be. Like they don't really want to go and play ping pong. I mean, maybe they do at the end of a long day because they love their colleagues and they're having fun. But the value prop is not you can scoot around the office, right? The value yeah. prop is like, be the best self you can be. It will help you be even better than you ever thought you could. Yeah. I mean, any day of the week, I would imagine a personality, let's, let's, put, let's put them in a situation where they feel like they don't really know what they're doing. They're overworked. They're not in a sweet spot. They don't even know why they're doing what they're doing. But they have some really nice things. Like, it is convenient that I get to do blank. And it is convenient that I get to bring my dogs in or I get to do whatever it that is going to outweigh like the feeling of not being sure what I'm doing, not being good at it, not, you know, not knowing what the purpose behind my energy is going to way outweigh the small, nice benefits that they created in that area. Right. I mean, I, I think it was Stanford that did a study on um, fulfillment and they interviewed, you know, a lot of people towards the end of their life and just trying to find any commonalities between those who would say they had a really fulfilling life and those who did not. And three things seem to emerge from that study, autonomy, mastery, and mission. Mm -hmm. That if they felt like they had a sense of autonomy, meaning like they weren't just told what to do all the time, but they got to be creative, have their fingerprints on things. Second, that they felt like they had a sense of mastery, that they got really good at something that they felt confident in. And the third, that it was being used for some kind of purpose, some kind of mission. They are making an impact. Those three things seem to always be in, in the soup of whatever a fulfilled person was reporting about their life. And it sounds like you, your company is nailing all three of those. You're giving people autonomy to take ideas, take risks, you know, take action. They're getting really dang good at a certain skill. And they're trying to make an impact on what you said earlier, this problem that feels very clear and you're very passionate about changing in the workplace experience. So kudos to you guys. I, that, that to me sounds like a better recipe for thinking through attracting talent, right? 
Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think my job is, CEO is really just to, to do th- there's many hats you wear as you know but I think there's like three things you really just have to get right you have to hire really great people right and you have to like set them in the right direction give them what they need support them like think about how to nurture them grow them over time etc right there's the talent piece you have to have a vision here's the problem that I'm solving here's who I'm solving it for here's why it matters and then you need to obsessively listen to customers and users and instill that across everyone in your team Right. So you're iterating and constantly like changing in service of that mission. If you do those three things right, it's hard to fail. <laughs> it may take you some time. You may have a lot of iterating and pivoting, but like if you are headed in the right direction with the right set of people and you're able to adjust as you learn along the way, that's really all you can ask for. I love that. That is that is super simple, not simple to execute. Uh, but yeah. simple to at least wrap your mind around, like this would be the best. Simple, use of my not time. easy. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, I'm curious, how would you describe the season that the company's in now? Right, like I, I just kind of think, in, I know it doesn't always fit, but kind of in story and early days, we we're trying to prove the product and find the fit, and now we're trying to figure out how to scale better. Like, how would you characterize the season you're in and the challenge you're trying to solve? Yeah, we're we're in scaling up mode. Um, we're from a product perspective and, and even a user's like moving from um, what was really great for individuals. We built an individual product to start. You've got, you've got a bunch of clients and you've got to explain to them how to do something. They're constantly asking you questions. You can use Scribe to we've now moved and, and you'll see this a lot in, in what we've released and what we will be releasing uh, much more team-based. We are now trying to help you and your team and your organization share knowledge with each other and, and externally with your clients too much better. And so how do we make this very multiplayer, repeated interaction, very collaborative over time? Um, and so that's where we've shifted, you know, as, as a product and, and as a company, it's now about really how do you scale that up? And, um, you know, we've grown to be in hundreds of thousands of organizations in, in over a hundred countries. And so wow. for us, the, the next stage is, is how do we get that to millions? How's that, that next step change? What's the size of the team right now? Just a bit under 50 people. Okay. That's a big growth. That's a big leap in what, two to three years, you yeah. know, just, just you and a few people to 50 people now. That's a, that's a lot. That's what I'm saying. I feel like I intimately feel your, your question, right. Of, <laughs> of going from, you know, me and five engineers when we first released this thing to, you know, now, now a team that's built out across all functional areas. As a, as, as a leader, as the head of that organization, what, what's the biggest challenge at leading 50 versus leading five? It's still maintaining the same sense of urgency, right? Because you have to spend the same time um, uh, aligning, like, here's the mission. Here's why we're doing what we're doing is important. Remember, we said we we're going to do this. You repeat yourself a lot, right? Remember, we said we were going to do this. We are now doing this. This is what this looks like and kind of like the consistency of that mission and that that message, um, but still maintaining the same sense of urgency and the, like I said, the more people you have around the table, like the easier it is for people to spend time just talking to each other and, and yeah. iterating on ideas. And one of my big soapboxes is um, I talk a lot about collaboration overload, um, which uh, which is ironic given that I run a, you know, a collaboration software company, but we spend so much of our time collaborating with each other and technology has made that even easier. It's so easy for me to just like send you a Slack and hop on a Zoom and you and I spend time talking through something. You show me how to do something. We feel like we were really productive, right? We feel like we were busy, I should say. Like, oh, I did a lot today. I had a bunch of meetings. You didn't actually accomplish anything. Nothing shipped. Yeah. <laughs> or whatever your metric is, right? For us, it's shipping. <laughs> um, nothing shipped. No new features came out. And so constantly, it's always this push of like, how do you default to action? How do you get people to go fast, have that sense of urgency, and um, you know, really try to maintain that same speed that you had when you were that small speedboat? Yeah. We refer to that as RPMs versus miles per hour that yeah. the often like we may have revved our engine a lot that day, meaning we did a lot of things, but it didn't really yep. move us. It really didn't move us anywhere and say like, that's a busy culture. That's just like doing things to do things or just reactive to whatever the first thing that came in was versus miles per hour is, is prioritizing moving in the direction we want to go and how far down the road did we get today? Right. Um, what I'm busy curious is about, one of my least favorite words. I hate busy. You'll notice you ask people, hey, how are you doing today? And especially if they're American, they'll often answer, oh, busy, really busy. Yeah. To me, that's bad. Like we wear it as a badge of honor. I'm very busy. I'm an important person. 
I think it's bad because really what you want to be doing is saying like, no, I have these like five things that are very important. They're my top priorities. That's what I say yes to. And everything else, you know, like it's okay if I I let some of those things drop. Like I'm not going to let the busy get in the way of the important. I love it. Give me one second uh, while I get this sweet child back to her mother. Hi. My door. All right. Real life. I told you it was a matter of time. Um, <laughs> last question. And then I'll let you go. I know we're right up on an hour here. Um, have you noticed, uh, at 50 people now versus five that demand on, on individuals has started to be an issue. And what I mean is you have the blessing of having a product that's working and therefore it generates rapid demand. You're in hundreds of thousands of companies. You're in multiple. It's like, almost it's hard to keep up with fulfilling the demand or things are breaking down while you're releasing new things. And now we're all wearing multiple hats. Has, has that been an issue at this point that maybe wasn't earlier on? If you're running a fast growing business and you're doing it correctly, I believe it should always feel like things are being pulled out of you and you are like seconds away from dropping it all mm. because that means you're moving fast enough. How do you keep, um, and so how do you keep that like from being to- a burnout? experience for people if they feel like almost they're always running on adrenaline and at the edge of their capacity. Yeah. So there's, there's a difference, right. Between saying like, you feel like you're on the edge of dropping something. And you notice I have not said like working all hours, right. Right. Like I, I, there's like this whole kind of hustle culture and I'd argue hustle porn of Silicon Valley where people love to talk about how they work so hard. We all sleep, right. Everyone has dinner with their families. Like no one is in the office at 10 PM playing ping pong with each other. Um, and that's because we are very clear about what is important to us and what we are trying to drive and what we say no to. There's a whole bunch of things that we say no to that, that we could have said yes to, or would have defaulted into saying yes to, if we hadn't been explicit about it, that would have filled our time. And so I was just talking to, um, to someone on my, my team yesterday and I was like likening what we're doing to juggling a bunch of balls. And I was like, what matters more is which ball you can throw the highest. Not, did I not drop any of them? Hmm. It obviously depends what the balls are. There's some balls you cannot drop, right? Yeah. There's actually a lot of balls that you can drop that don't, they feel like they're really important, but they're actually not, right? Or you can kind of gently set them down for a while and come back to them later. Yeah. And so it's it's very much an exercise in like figure out what are the most important things and like freaking knock those things out of the park and worry less about saying yes to everything and saying yes to like a few things that you do really, really, really well. Yeah. The first time I read Gary Keller's book, The One Thing, that was the biggest aha to me was his his premise is that at any given time, there's one thing that's more important than everything else. And yes. that if you give that one thing, it's adequate resources, it makes everything else easier or not even necessary. And then he had a, he had a juggling ball analogy where he said, some balls are made of glass and some are made of rubber. Right. And as long as you know, which are which like, Hey, this one, right. it's not that I want to drop it, but it can bounce back and recover more than this one. If I drop this too often, it'll shatter. And that has a lot of ramifications. That's just a helpful analogy for me as well. It's like, just know, like, which one is this? Is this a, a rubber one? Is this a glass one? Um, Cause we're all juggling things at all times, family, health, friendships, uh, work, and inside of work, we're juggling things. Right. And that's what I think where people can get a little bit mentally overwhelmed. Um, I think a lot about um, like a three-step framework. I guess I'm a former consultant. I think three-step frameworks, um, which, which please don't hold against me too much, is, is, you know, what am I trying to advance at any moment? Like, what am I trying to get better at? What am I trying to maintain? Which is something like just kind of keeping it running at the level of performance it's at. And then what am I okay dropping? And, and like, that'll change, you know, over time. So like in my personal life, my son is um, getting a little older. He's 10 months now and he like wants me to be around. So I'm trying to spend more time with my son. I'm like advancing. How do I get more quality time with my son? Right. Yeah. Maintenance mode. Like I'm not trying to get in better shape right now. Like let's just sort of like maintain the shape we're in at the moment. And that's good enough as it is. And, And later that'll change. And I might flip that to advance, but that is where it is. Drop. 
my house is a disaster. Like it came to my house right now. It does not look organized and it bothers me, but that's a conscious decision where I say like, can't have it all. And this is the thing I'm not going to have at this moment. Right. And those things change over time, right? You'll change kind of the relative priorities, but I'm very clear with myself about which is in which mode. And I don't beat myself up about the stuff that I'm just maintaining or dropping because I say I've, I've explicitly made that decision and that's okay. Yeah, man. It makes me think of my wife with our first child, uh, our oldest, when she was uh, first two to three months of her life had colic and so she's screaming all the time, inconsolable. My son too. That is very hard. It's like <laughs> I said, the way I put it, it was like nails on the chalkboard of your soul. Yeah. It's yeah. deeper than just your mind. It's like, I'll be, I'd be on the phone at two in the morning with the hospital. Cause I was like, how do you know this is colic? Like he won't, yeah. she won't stop screaming. Is there something worse going on that we're missing? Like, so it just messes with you. And then my wife also had postpartum depression. So that was messing with her. But what made it worse were all of the standards that she had for what she thought this season was supposed to look like. And the fact that she couldn't console the baby, the fact that the baby wasn't on a sleep schedule, like she thought it was supposed to be and the house was a mess and whatever. And I remember talking to her and being like, I think that's, that is exaggerating the suffering, making the suffering worse. Like the suffering is already that we have a very difficult season right now. And so I said, how about we lower the bar to two things? Yeah. Keep the baby alive and don't leave us. I was like, the, I was like, that's my, my two things. Yeah. Like if I don't hear your, your tires screeching in the night and you're out of here <laughs> and I get home and the baby is alive, like that is what we need to celebrate every day. And it helped her to like yeah. lower the bar and be like, Hey, we'll, we'll get to sleep schedules. We'll get to the house being, you know, clean again, but not right now we're in survival mode. And so we just need to prioritize keeping the baby alive, loving on the baby and not leaving the family, you know? Um, and I find that is a useful for any season you're in, just being able to look at it and go, all right, we're not in an ideal world right now. So what could I flex on? What, what bars need to change? Right. Even when you are in an ideal world, you're still never going to do, if you try to do everything, you're never going to knock any particular thing out of the park. And I would argue you get way more mileage out of your life of knocking a few things out of the park and like keeping everything else kind of as is and rotating, which thing you're knocking out of the park. And so even when, all circumstances are ideal. Still be honest with yourself. Like there are three things that I can really move forward right now. Like what are those three most important things that are going to take all of my energy? Yeah. And then yeah. what else is going to fall by the wayside or what do I need to do to kind of like, you know, keep it at a, at the maintenance mode? Yeah. Even just in marriage, like I, you realize that our needs change like in a partnership, but you already feel at capacity and you're like, I don't know how many things I can tend to right now. And so one of the things we did is we'll just check in every few months and say, what's one thing that you need from me right now that you're not getting. And that's so much more helpful than 10 things or five things. And usually the other nine don't matter nearly as much as the, is the one answer where it's like, you know, one time it was, I need, my wife said, I need to be able to go to somewhere like target guilt-free for no reason. Like her at that moment, she's like, I just need to be able to feel like I can go out of the house and wander if I want to and not worry about when I need to come home and blah, 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 blah. Right. Other times it would be, I need connection, you know, like if we could just talk a little more about our day or whatever. And so I found that helpful in my personal life. And now I'm starting to apply it to my business as well. What's one thing the business needs for me right now, more than anything else, you know, and let that kind of guide the vast majority of resources. Yeah. I love that question. You can imagine applying that on your one-on-ones with your teams too. Yeah. Or even if you're client facing, asking your customers, like, what's the one thing you need from us? Yeah. It just, it also helps them simply. They don't know until you ask it. And they're like, huh. Yeah. If I had to pick one thing, no one's ever asked me that question. I don't ask myself that question, but it's the most important one. Yeah. Absolutely. The 80 20 rule typically applies. Like, there's only a few things that that generate 80% of the suffering or 80% of the relief, right? Um, All right. To get you out of here, did you have something come to mind? I asked you before the podcast, any books? I mentioned the one thing. Is there any books? that you particularly love that you could leave us with? Yeah, I said that I would take it as a challenge to try to name a book because I bet you've gotten so many good book recommendations over the many, many podcasts that you've done with with great people. So I, I'm going to try to name something that no one has named before. Um, so there is an author at the turn of the last century called Wallace Waddles. 
who studied successful people at the time and tried to distill what he thought were the common traits. You could kind of call him like a self-help guru, but before that industry ever existed, this is a couple centuries ago. Um, And he talks a lot about the power of visualization and manifestation, um, but without using those words. It's before we had that vocabulary. So he talks a lot about um, picturing the end goal that you want and like imagining what that looks like, holding that, imagining what it feels like and worrying less about the how and caring a lot more about the what and why and trusting that you'll figure out the how along the way. Um, and and I, I find it very inspiring. It's sort of like the, the early woo-woo, but before woo-woo was a thing. So it's, it, <laughs> yeah. maybe, it maybe it's a little more accessible um, to uh, to folks who might be over. Do you know the that. name of the book? So it's Wallace Waddle. He's written a number of them. He's okay. written a number of them. I think Think and Grow Rich is the one that he's most famous for. Um, but any of that. Uh, nope. I got That's that That's Napoleon name wrong. Hill. Yeah, exactly. I got that wrong. Um, you know, I don't know, actually. Um, well, we'll just I'm blank- Google I'm blanking search on them because I've, I've read like a number of different books um, and I, I they're all the same theme. <laughs> yeah. So I would say if you read one or two, like you've, you've probably covered most of them. Heck yeah. I'm excited because I love Napoleon Hill stuff. And to me, yeah. I saw the power of visualization in sports. Uh, sports psychologists helped me with that. And it was it made so much sense. It didn't feel woo woo. It was like, oh, this is yeah. the best way to get my mind focused in the right way. And you know, get confidence high and get execution sharp and that kind of thing. And so I, why wouldn't that work in any other important thing in our life? So I love that. Yep. Yep. All right, Jennifer, thank you for your time. You've given us an hour. This has been one of my favorite interviews of the year. I'm excited uh, about you and your product. And uh, where should we tell people to go if they're listening and they're like, I want this in my company? Where do they start? Um, you can check us out, scribehow.com, scribehow.com and click that try for free button. Um, it takes you four minutes, as I mentioned, um, to be able to create an account and uh, and share your first scribe with someone. Scribe's completely free. Um, we don't put any limits on on your usage. If, if you do want to upgrade uh, to the paid product, um, we'll offer a promo card code that you can uh, share with your audience. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you, Jennifer. I appreciate it. Founders, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.